Take your Bibles, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 7. Those of you who attend Bible study on Wednesday night are going to get a repeat here because we're going to do something different in the lead up here towards the Christmas holiday. We are going to, to take a look at the person of Jesus Christ presented to us in the Old and the New Testament. And we cannot do a comprehensive job of this in the weeks uh, between now and Christmas but we can, I think, do a thorough job. And this is an important job. And I hope that you'll take it importantly. Uh, on Wednesday night, a few weeks ago, uh, I taught this very lesson. Now, obviously, I was teaching and not preaching, so this will be different. But I taught from these two texts. Uh, in Sunday school class, a couple weeks ago, from this, this passage here in these two texts, I can assure you this will be the only repeat for those of you who are in Sunday school with me or come on Wednesday nights. But this is the starting point that I wanted to land on. We are going to be looking at, at Jesus Christ as the Son of God, which sounds simple uh, and normal to those of us who've been serving the Lord for a long time, but which is far more magnificent than I think we often give credit to in our daily lives. Uh, I want to start this morning, if you're in 2 Samuel 7, you don't have to turn with me, but I want to reread what Joe read during this morning's scripture reading. Thank you, Joe, for reading it. But I want to draw us once again into this, the importance of what it means that God has given us His Son. Now, this is Hebrews chapter 1, and again, it's what Joe read. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past, to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he, that's God, ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, Let all the aches his God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his, the son's angels, spirits, and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. Notice there, the one he is speaking to is God, and the one 
who is anointing him is God. And you see the Trinity at work even in the Old Testament. Verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up and they will be changed. But you are the same and your years will not fail. But to which of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Folks, when we consider the person of Jesus Christ and his relationship to God the Father, we ought to sit quietly and in awe for many, many reasons. And in the weeks ahead, I want to go through some of those reasons and some of those passages with you as we lead up to Christmas. And I want to start here in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now in 2 Samuel, we have a very familiar figure, a man by the name of David. And in verse 1 it says, It came to pass, when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, we know a little bit about David. Uh, we know that he killed a giant named Goliath. We might know that he started off as a shepherd boy, playing his harp in the fields, singing praises to God, and strangers and wanderers would sometimes hear the youngest of Jesse's sons singing to the Lord as he messed around on an instrument, doing a very menial job, such as watching sheep. Now, watching sheep is important, but it's not exactly a Herculean task most of the time. Unless you're David, who took his job so seriously that he even put his life on the line to fight off wild animals to protect the sheep, which was certainly beyond the call of duty. We do not see shepherds generally sacrificing their lives to return one sheep. But this was Jesse's son as a young man. As an older man, he goes off to fight Goliath. Uh, he has anointed uh, the, the future king of Israel, and in the years ahead, he finds himself on the run from King Saul, and he bides his time patiently, as God would have him. Saul is the, the king of Israel, the rightful king of Israel. God has promised David he will one day be king of Israel, but David is not impatient as to the Lord's promises, and instead goes through this really... Uh, Awesome and incredible wandering nomadic period of life where he's just traveling from place to place, fleeing from Saul and, and trying to establish himself and trying to live peacefully while Saul is off to kill him. At one point, he is aligned with the very Philistines whom he once killed their chief warrior Goliath because his own kingdom will not receive him anymore. And now he is at a point in life in 2 Samuel chapter 7 where all that has been put to bed. All of that is done. He has brought the Ark of the Covenant of God into the new capital city of God, which David has established there, Jerusalem. The tabernacle has been set up in Jerusalem, the tabernacle being the elaborate tent which God had instructed the great workers to build under the command of Moses at the time of the Exodus, where the priest will go in and present offerings and sacrifices before the Ark of the Covenant to God, and it is there in Jerusalem. 
And David here, it says, has rest from all his enemies. The kingdom is greatly expanded. There are no more worlds to conquer, which he has authorization to pursue. He is experiencing great wealth in the kingdom as tribute and taxes from all of the people who have been conquered pours in. He himself has erected a huge palace made, as described here, of cedar. Not just wood, not just stone, but the massive logs of construction imported from faraway places to erect huge lasting palaces overlaid with stone and ornaments and sometimes gold and silver. And this is where David dwells. And it says here that the Lord has given him rest from all his enemies. When the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given rest from all his enemies. At what point in your life do you plan to have rest? At what point in your life do you plan to have rest? I think for most of us, it is a far and future concept. Uh, David had achieved a rest that most of us uh, have not in any material sense achieved. David had done the magnificent things that he was supposed to do. When I was teaching this on Wednesday night, uh, I happened to have been finishing up a biography on, on the great Walter Payton, and uh, whenever I finish a biography on a famous athlete, uh, I, I'm always interested not just in what they accomplished during their athletic career, but I'm interested in what their life was like when they were done. Because, you know, athletes, they just kind of shoot up to stardom, and then they pretty much hit a pinnacle when they're like 30 or 40, the latest. And then what do you do with the rest of your life? Then what do you do? What do you do when you've saved for retirement or when you can't physically work anymore? Or when, what are you going to do with your life? David was at the point where finances had been taken care of. Enemies had been conquered. Everything was going well. And he had rest. And he could have played golf every day or taken up new hobbies, or decided to build some new and elaborate empire. Certainly that's what we see his son Solomon one day doing, isn't it? We see Solomon trying to tackle aspects of the economy and ingenuity with engineering and ideas, and he gives himself to project after project after project because Solomon had a whole life of rest. Well, David is at a point where he has rest, and this is why David is called a man after God's own heart. And this is why Solomon is not called a man after God's own heart. But David is called a man after God's own heart. Because when David entered a time of rest where God had delivered him and where God had established him, he turns his mind and his attention, what can I do for the Lord? What now can I do for the Lord? And he recognizes an inequity of sorts. And the inequity that he recognizes as he turns his mind towards his God and how he might serve and do great things for his God who has done so much for him, he turns his mind to the fact that the Ark of the Covenant where the Spirit of God dwelt above the cherubim where sacrifices were offered daily, that the Ark rested in a tent, an elaborate tent, but a tent, while he lived in a palace 
And he reasons to himself, this inequity is not good. And he brings it to the prophet Nathan. And the prophet Nathan responds in verse 3, we might say hastily, but we also might say recognizing the sincerity of David's approach. The prophet Nathan says, go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. And indeed the Lord was with him. And what was in his heart was good to be in his heart. But the prophet served a special function. He was supposed to run these things by God. That's why the king had gone to him in the first place. Nathan, evidently so convinced, excuse me, immediately convinced by the sincerity of David's intention that he gives him authorization. And then immediately in verse 4, we read this. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Uh-oh. Saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. Now listen to this. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts. Now, while, you're, while I'm reading this to you, just circle every time God says that he did something. And you'll see the pattern here. Okay? I've got circled every time the letter I as a word appears. Now listen to what he says to David. I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people, Israel, and I will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness, wickedness oppress them any more as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. Now, when we enter the stage of life, when we can ask ourselves, what might we do for the Lord? And I hope that many of us are there to a certain extent now. And I pray, and I mean this sincerely. I pray that when we all get to the point where God has met our needs. And our children are raised and gone. And our work has been established. And we have rest. That every person will turn their minds to what they might do for the Lord. That is right and that is good. But when that day comes, let's be very careful. Lest we slip into the sin that I have seen from some. That God needs me. God depends upon me. 
I'm doing something for God not out of humble devotion to the great God who has given me even my own life. But I'm doing something for God because I'm capable and I can and I will for him. The first thing that God says to David is not some big strong rebuke, but it is a reordering of the situation. Because David has said, has said, what can I do for God? And God has said, let's be clear about the relationship that we have here, buddy. I have done all of this for you. And while you're saying, this is really the great poetic beginning and ending of it, right? Verse 5, listen, verse 5. Would you build a house for me to dwell in? Verses, verse 11. The Lord tells you, he will make you a house. You see the flip? You see the reordering? What David had imagined wasn't wrong, but there is a word of caution here. I don't care no matter how zealous you are in your service to God. Don't ever cross the line into thinking that God depends on you. Or that His church depends on you. Or that His gospel depends on you. Because it doesn't. The gospel of Jesus and apostles. The word of God. The gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church of our Lord. Spread throughout the entire known world. On the heels of a crucified Messiah. In a place where it only brought persecution and difficulty. And it spread everywhere. God does not depend upon you. If God needs you to do something for his plan, you are going to do it. Whether you want to or not, you are going to do it. Just ask our brother Paul on the road to Damascus what God is capable of. Or go to the Old Testament and check in with Balaam and his donkey. God does not depend upon you. And the fact that he has given you the privilege to serve him is an honor. It's an honor. So David wasn't wrong to have in his heart a desire to serve God. But there was a difficulty if at any point during this process he was going to vainly imagine, well, this ministry really depends on me. There is no ministry that depends on you. None. If God wants there to be a ministry, there will be one, whether you do what you're supposed to or not. Praise the Lord for that, because we mess things up all the time. We are totally dependent upon Him. So first, the big reorder, right? But now listen to what God says. In fulfillment of this, I will make you a house. Listen to this in verse 12. When your days are fulfilled, now he's talking to David, when you die, and you rest with your fathers, I will set up your seed after you who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. In other words, David, when I say I'm going to build you a house, I'm talking about your lineage, your descendants. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. And indeed, Solomon built a house. 
He built the temple of God. But then listen to this. And this is what the Old Testament does. We get a blending of prophetical meaning here. Because this is prophecy. This hasn't happened yet. Solomon hasn't built any temple. right? But listen to this. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Now, where is the throne of Solomon today? Is it in Jerusalem? I think, uh, is it still Benjamin Netanyahu, who's the prime minister in Israel? I think it's still him. He's on quite a streak, by the way. He's been at this for a long time, off and on. Does he go and sit on the throne of Solomon in Jerusalem? No, no. The throne of Solomon was not established forever and ever and ever in any literal sense. Not Solomon's. Solomon's whole temple gets destroyed. The Babylonians destroy the entire city. They tear down the palace. Now Solomon is going to build the temple from the first part of verse 13. But the second part of verse 13, <coughs> it's reaching out way beyond Solomon. Verse 14. I will be his father and he shall be my son. Whoa. Now to you and I, we can become desensitized by this kind of language. This is what I meant when I was praying, and I prayed that we would not become desensitized to this. But you need to understand something. To my knowledge, all throughout the Old Testament, this sort of language right here is unique. I don't remember God ever telling Abraham that he would be Abraham's father and Abraham would be his son. I don't remember that. I don't remember that conversation with Moses, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. I don't remember that. This is unique. This is unique. There's an inference here in some adoption taking place. Because it says, for your son, David, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, we know the fulfillment of that in Jesus, born of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit of God. But the hint of adoption is peculiar and sweet because it's by the person of Jesus that we are all adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. To those who believe on His name, this is the Scriptures, He has given the right to be called sons of God. That's not a common thing. We owe it to Jesus. And here... As God tells David what he will do in his line from Solomon all the way to the Messiah, there are elements of it that apply to that line and elements of it that apply to the grand conclusion of that line, which is Jesus Christ. Listen to this. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men and with the blows of the sons of men, but my Mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. This is what it means to be chosen by God. What he's saying here is, Saul was a bad king, and I wiped out his line. But I have chosen to build you a house, David, so when your descendants are lousy kings, and boy, were there ever some lousy kings in there. I will chastise them. I will rebuke them. I will punish them. 
with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. Do you know why? Because a father who truly loves his son, no matter what that son does, a father loves his son and is merciful and is gracious. And he may have to take off the belt every once in a while and give a whooping. He may have to take something precious away. He may have to give a strong talking to every once in a while or routinely in my experience. But my mercy doesn't depart from my son. There are other people in life who we move on from. We don't move on from children. We don't move on from family. And this is the preciousness of what God is promising to do with this lineage. Verse 16, and here's the conclusion of God's promise. This is why God is going to do this with David's line. And your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. Now by my count, that is three forevers in just a few verses. I think God is trying to tell David something and trying to tell us something. Because men and kingdoms and thrones on their own don't last forever. Nothing lasts forever. As we, read, as we read from Hebrews there, as Joe read from Hebrews, nothing lasts forever. The very world that we're living in will expire. And we get the warnings of it all the time, don't we? People are very eager to warn us about the expiring world that we live in. But this son's kingdom will not expire. His throne will not end. His dominion will be forever. When you think about Jesus, we can think about a Messiah, and we can think about a Lord, and we can think about a Savior, but understand, all of that comes to us only because He is the Son of God. He is the one, man, He is the one whom God would accomplish all of this through. You know, a couple weeks ago, in our Sunday morning reading. I think it was Paul, but I'm not 100% sure. Paul, did you read from Romans 5? I think you read from Romans 5. Steve's nodding. You don't remember, but Steve and I remember. We got it. Maybe go touch up on it this afternoon, Paul. Just... And Romans 5 is laying out the distinction between Adam and Christ. Because Adam and Christ are unique. They are direct human beings from God. Cain and Abel, they were from Adam. <laughs> you and me, we're from Adam. Not so with the man Jesus Christ and Adam. Famous passage whereby one man, sin and death entered the world, so by one man we are saved. All because of verse 14, this remarkable thing, I will be his father and he shall be my son. Now, the conclusion of this. Turn to Psalm 2. By the way, that verse, I will be his father, he shall be my son. That's in that Hebrews 1 passage. It's one of those Old Testament verses. This is important. Christian theology depends upon you knowing what God has done here and why he's done it. Now, Psalm chapter 2 we get a couple other of those Hebrews chapter 1 verses. Now listen to this. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? 
The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? A vain thing means something that is foolish, unprofitable, is not going to accomplish anything. What are they plotting? What is this vain thing that they are imagining? The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. In other words, the people of the earth look to the God of heaven and His anointed, Jesus Christ, and they imagine, let's just be done with this relationship. Let's live our lives however we want to live it. Let's do whatever we want to do. Let's live and govern by our own reasoning and wisdom. If God says that there will be judgment for something, let's be done with those cords that bond us. Let's be done with those chains that enslave us. If God says something should not be done, let's break those bonds and those rules. And let's do what we want to do. Let's build the world that we want to live in. Let's live the lives that we want to imagine. Let's not be confined and constrained by the edicts of any almighty God. Why is that a vain thing to imagine? Because you can say that you're not confined by the edicts and the jurisdiction of an almighty God until you're blue in the face. But eventually, just like your little kids, mom and dad are going to come home. Eventually, you're going to meet that God. And whatever deception you imagined, that you could simply break the cords that enslaved you to all of his rules and obligations, eventually, the time to pay the piper is going to come. And you're going to stand before that God whom you imagined you could simply do away with. You know, when you were little kids, did you ever on some trumped up misconception think, I could do whatever I want? Well, let me tell you what happens if you have good parents and you, you, you decide, you know, I could do whatever I want. You know what good parents do? They correct that false idea really fast. Really fast. Why do parents do it? Because they don't want their kids to drive a car 100 miles an hour. <laughs> because they don't want their kids to go out and ruin their lives in 10 different relationships they shouldn't be in. Because they don't want their kids to go out and do stupid things. Things that would endanger them, compromise them. Why do we have edicts and commands and instructions from God's Word? Why are we given a Savior whom we should believe in and profess as Lord and obey to save us, to save us from the sin that is destructive on this earth and the hell that will be the eternal judgment of it forever. Let me read this again into the next verse. Why do the nations rage and the people plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and His anointed, saying... Let us break their bonds in pieces and cast away their cords from us. 
Now this points prophetically to the end of the thousand year reign of Christ on the earth when Satan will be set free and he will once again manipulate the rulers that govern this earth to go to war against Jesus who has reigned on the earth. Verse 4. He who sits in heaven shall laugh. You know, as a mom or dad, you can do that from time to time too, right? <laughs> you know, there's the kid, and the kid is crying, and he's saying, I'm sorry, I shouldn't have done it. And the mom and dad, you know, as moved to compassion as they could be, could kind of say, <laughs> well, you're still going to pay the price. You know, I love you, I care about you, but uh, you made, um, you know, I remember this, I don't have kids young enough to do this anymore, but you remember when you had to explain to your children the difference between an accident and a mistake? You remember that? You know, you catch a little kid doing something wrong, and they turn to you and they say, it was an accident. I accidentally hit him in the nose. You say, no, 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 that wasn't an accident. It was a mistake. You, you knew what you were doing. Here, in a much more disturbing way, the great God of the universe looks at those who would try to pretend that he doesn't exist and he doesn't rule and he doesn't own anything and they don't owe anything to their lives and he laughs and holds them in derision. Verse 5, Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. You're going to make war against my son? You're going to make war against my people? You're going to take away my people and their possessions and their homes and their land and their freedom? You're going to try to scare them away from worshiping me and honoring me? Okay. Then he shall speak to them in his wrath. And distress them in his deep displeasure. This is what he says. You guys have done everything that you have done. Fine. Yet I have set my king on my holy hill. That's Jesus. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Jesus will reign on the earth. The kings of the earth will bow fealty to him. Every knee will bow, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, Lord of lords, King of kings. Jesus is God's Son, who has been obedient and sinless, obeying the perfect will of God, even to the point of death on the cross. Ask of me, God says, the Father says to the Son, ask of me and I will give you the nations for your inheritance. Why? They're God's to give anyway. This is what He will do to honor the Son. And the ends of the earth for your possession. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. That's funny when you look at a map. 
There's all different kinds of maps. Sometimes they're real amazing to look at, right? And you've got, okay, this is Preble County. And over here is Wayne County, and this is Dark County. And, and these two counties have lines around them that says where the boundaries and the borders go. And inside those boundaries and borders, there are all sorts of officials set up to rule there, right? And they make all their different rules and, and, and laws, and everybody's got to abide by them. And then outside the counties, there's the... Some of us are from the state of Ohio, others from Indiana. Then you get to the country level, and there's more lines and more rulers and more laws. And then there's... You know, all the agreements that we have, and, and it's just layer upon layer upon layer of government and jurisdiction and rule and boundary and line. God will give the scepter to his son who will dash all of that to pieces. And it's not going to be this city and this city and this county and this county and this state and this state and this country and this country, all with their different rulers and all with their different laws and all with their different... No, no, no. It's all going to be His. He's going to trample all that stuff underfoot. And with it, those who are wicked and imagine that they owe Him nothing. Think about that the next time you're feeling overly patriotic. No, that's not a bad thing. Just remember, it's temporary, my friends. Our citizenship is in heaven. You shall break them with the rod of iron. You shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Verse 10, counsel. We'll close here. Now therefore, be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. God is giving notice to everybody. Here it is. A couple thousand years ago in the Bible, here's due notice. You know, it's kind of unfair when you just show up and declare war on somebody out of nowhere, right? Here's the notice. Don't say you weren't warned. Be wise, O kings. Be instructed, you judges of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice. With trembling, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Who's the son? Jesus. Jesus. Kiss the son. Pay fealty to him. That's what it was when you went to the foot of a ruler's throne. And he extended maybe a ring or a scepter, his hand. And you would take it and you would kiss it and pledge fealty, service, allegiance, devotion to that king. That's what it meant. That's what this means. Be warned, you kings, you rulers of the earth. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then finally, here is a blessed are those who put their trust in him. Folks, God did not just give us a Messiah. That's what Israel wanted. They wanted a Messiah. 
They wanted to be free from the Romans. And some of you want to be freed from things in your life. And honestly, I think if push comes to shove, hopefully not in the deepest sense of our Christian convictions, but sometimes on the surface level, what we want from God is just messianic deliverance from something going on in our lives. God did not give us just any old savior, just any old deliverer. But what does Isaiah say? Unto us a son is born. Unto us a child is born. Unto us a son is given. A son. Jesus Christ is no mere man. He is the precious son of God. And the father watched as he was born into this world. And he watched his son behave honorably and righteously with integrity, with strength and not fear, and be obedient even to the point of death. And there was no fan section cheering him on. He watched as his son, whom he had given, faithfully obeyed, all the way through life, all the way through death. And Philippians tells us, therefore, he has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ, Jesus the Messiah, is Lord. At Christmas time, and when we come here and when we sing, open the eyes of my heart, Lord, when we say, bless his holy name, understand what you are saying and you are thinking and you are singing. Understand what you are celebrating. This is not just a God, not just a man. This is a precious son of God extended to you and you owe him your allegiance. And anyone who thinks they can live their lives disregarding Him and throwing off the cords that bind them and their lives to the edicts and the principles and the instructions by which He has commanded us to live has another thing coming. Because one day, everyone will die and stand before the Lord. And the instruction here is, kiss the Son Put your faith in Him now. Give your allegiance to Him now. Blessed are those who put their trust in Him. That's where my trust is. That's where I know many of your trust is. And I hope as we meditate on these things in the weeks ahead, that this ends up being a powerful reflection toward the God whom we truly serve. This is no mere idol. This is a living, breathing man. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, you are holy. We owe you devotion and allegiance. Our own ideas about what we ought to do with our lives, about right and wrong, about good and evil... Every thought and feeling that we have will one day be brought under evaluation by your son Jesus, a righteous judge. You have given us in your word all that we need to know for life and godliness. 
in your word right there for us. And you have put us on notice that we either commit ourselves to the Messiah whom you have given in the form of your Son, that we either profess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that we either believe in His death, burial, resurrection, and His future kingdom when He will return to the earth and reign. We either serve Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength now, or we will perish in His way. Your kingdom will come. Your Son will be established. It is His inheritance. You have offered, you have extended to us an invitation to be not only citizens, but joint heirs with Christ in that kingdom. To be not merely citizens, but sons and daughters of your kingdom forever, eternally. Help us, Father, in our daily life to kiss Jesus Christ, to kiss His feet, to kiss His hands, to pledge ourselves loyal to Him, to place our trust and faith in Him. Give us the strength to do this. This is a scary world. Help us to subject all that we are to your Son, Jesus, and be blessed as we trust Him. Father, help us to do well in our offerings this week. Help us to honor you with our lives, to lay ourselves down as living sacrifices as we prepare to reflect further next week. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.